Well, like she said, um, my name's Glenn. I'm part of the teaching team here. Uh, we get to do this thing to where we set up, we dream, and we get to move towards what we hope to see. Kathy, thank you so much for sharing, because um, some of what we're going to talk to tonight with this Advent season, because Advent is this time of waiting, of expectation. Things have not arrived yet. They're just a little bit ahead. You can almost taste it, but it's not here yet. And you'd almost see the notion of what it can mean to wait. An idea of Kathy's artwork going through. Because if I can steal it for a second, you'll notice something. It's not just skill that grows with time. Skill does, but often what we underrate with the notion of skill is perspective. As you'll see in the first ones, they're whole pieces, entire plants with a little bit of shading. But as the skill grew and the attention to detail grew, the focus became tighter. As the focus became tighter, the details became alive, the colors became vivid. Because it's in the growth of perspective that the use of art, the use of imagery, and the use of story goes from a past thing, a it could happen thing, to a moment of impact for us. And if we're gonna be in the spirit of expectation, one thing I'd want to do, because this is the symbol of Christ with us, but we're in the season that Christ is not with us yet. We're in the season of waiting. So we've gone through joy, we've gone through hope. We're at the advent of love, and love is coming, but love is not yet here. So we get to sit, almost like it is now, in the, in the middle of winter, when darkness is winning over light, the, door, the days have shortened, the cold is rising. We know we're at the center of the time when all life is becoming dormant, like that first message with Rana, to where the tree went dormant, had no life in it, but said that later picture came that life was working even when you couldn't see it because it lay dormant. That that is the season now that we hope that we look towards the sun coming. And the sun is the advent, the coming, the hoped for life. And that's important, perspective is important, because what I want to talk to, about today is the idea of storytelling, because we're going to be looking at Revelation. And if you're raised in the church, especially for um, what I was raised with around a Pentecostal tradition in the 80s in the States, then you have a certain style of storytelling. And the way you tell a story helps frame the way you enter into a story. The way you anticipate the ending of a story actually shapes how you embody the present story. If the world is going to burn, if all things can be washed away, if this is just going to end, then what we do now doesn't really matter. We can just wait. And we can wait until all things come to an end. If the story continues, and the reason why we live well is because it's not about my life, but it's about life as a general thing. It's not just about me being able to live forever, but it's about Theo being able to have the moment from crawling now to get to inherit the earth himself, then I realize life carries through me and that which I do today is for the beauty of him being able to inherit something tomorrow. And that's the point of Advent. We're coming into a story that hopes for, that sees that the way we live into the ending of a story shapes the way the next person starts writing the chapter. Now this came most to light to me in my favorite story. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd. And my favorite thing for nerddom is literature. I would love to tell you that I had any sort of inclination for really profitable, business-minded, something that paid rent kind of nerddom. I have friends who have those nerddoms. They do well. I like archaic, I like old, and I like storytelling. It's actually how I met my wife. I would take over a coffee table at her diner, spread my books across all of them while I wrote lectures, 
And she, at the time, was a literary literature major, and she asked about a book that was a Count of Monte Cristo. Now, in case you guys are not as obsessed with Monte Cristo as I am, there are three different variations of the story. Because for English people who don't spend all their time imagining a building, you have a 600-page, a 900-page, and a 1,200-page version. The only thing that gets removed are some characters for the 900-page. Um, and some details on buildings. The 600 page, I don't know even why you read it, it's just it's done when you start. But it's this, it's this beauty because it's a French story and French stories end differently than Western American ones. And so I was in love with this book. And so when the movie came out and I was telling Brittany, it's like I got so upset because the movie made an American ending to a French story. The difference between an American and a French story is who gets to be in love. So Edmond Dantes, the Count of Monte Cristo, he was betrayed by people. He comes back to power. He, he realizes that vengeance is not his hand, that he's not the hand of God. But he is actually one who was with a bunch of people trying to work out the will of God. So after he goes through vengeance, he forgives one person, and he doesn't go back to Mercedes, which was his original love he lost in the beginning of the book. Because in the French tale, the point is not the ending of all the tension in the story. It's the beginning of new life. So he runs away with a woman he had saved, and they start the adventure he thought he was going to do 25 years previously with Mercedes. Now, that's not the way we tell stories, which you'd see in the movie, because Edmond Dantes spends his whole life pining away for Mercedes in the movie. And then at the end, he fights everybody to get the one woman he loves from his childhood, and they go into the sunset together, dreaming about the life they could have had. And then the story ends because there's no place to go. All tensions, all conflict have been resolved. So if we come to Revelation and we see Revelation at the ending of the story, all conflict gets resolved, we can actually get into a place there's no way to live into. There's no advent because the candle's never going to get lit. There's no advent because when Jesus comes, there's no more stories to write. But for Revelation and the Jewish storytelling, the way this Jewish storytelling goes, it's not linear. It's not beginning conflict, resolution, and the story naturally loses energy because it ends. In the Jewish mind, which are the people who wrote Revelation, their storytelling goes beginning, conflict, new beginning. And in the new beginning, it's about the conflict being resolved in such a way that the next chapter is written. So when they used stories, when they told stories, when the apocalypse happened, and if you're unaware of what the term apocalypse means, it means revealing. It's, it's a transliteration of a Greek word, which just means you took Greek letters and put English letters to it. You didn't translate it. So apoklizomai means to reveal, to let be seen behind a curtain. So when they said apocalypse, what they're saying is this literature let you peer behind the curtain to the story that's unfolding. Not because we're hoping for the end of all things, but we're seeing the new way that we can anticipate the beginning of all things. And in the beginning of all things, not only do you have a reason to try to anticipate, but you have a candle to light because you're expecting for the Christ here. Not only do you have a role to play, but if you do not have your role to play, the next chapter cannot be written. So as we go forward with this, like Edward and Mercedes reuniting at the end, we can sometimes think life is about trying to end all conflict, all tensions, that we come to this peaceful place of no movement.
However, if we join with the ancient apocalyptic writings that need quieter ringtones, um, the story doesn't end. It sets the stage for the next chapter to be written. And for that chapter, I want to invite us, now we've, we've been through Revelation a bit, but today we're going to go through Revelation 20, verse 11, and I'm sorry, Carl, um, after reading through it a few times today, I did the ultimate party foul and expanded it without telling you. Well, never mind. We're just doing this. Um, and because symbols have power for all of us, in this time, I just wanted to try to connect back to my family. This was a gift in 2002 when I was first getting licensed in the Church of God from my father because he said, anyone preaching needs a study Bible. If only knew the rabbit hole and nerddom these footnotes were going to inspire, he probably wouldn't have given me this one. So right now I'm going to read the story over us. And I want you to listen and to anticipate for what it looks like for the new beginning. Revelation 20, 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to that which they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what he has done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. There was no longer um, any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from those saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Like he, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, to, whom, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. Amen. And we're going to walk through a couple of the points of this text. I want to point out, if we read Revelation as a new beginning, then we see there's a point of here of finding space that actually creating space for something else to grow, to thrive, not just an end of all things. It says in 2011 that the old things could not find space here. There was no space for the earth or for heaven, depending if you want to understand. The tr Some translate that word as because heaven and sky are the same word. So the heavens and the earth 
It said fled before God's presence. And then 13, it said the old realms surrendered their dead. Now for us, when we think dead, we think one final destination. You're, you're in the grave, you're worm food, you're decomposing. But for them, there was realms of dead. So when they said in Revelation that the sea would give up its dead, that was one realm of the dead. When Hades, which was the Greek realm of dead again, and death was actually thought of as incarnate as the being. So you have the three keepers of death, the three realms that all who were no longer living, because for them was the binary, the living and the dead, went away to, said all had to give it up. And the reason they had to give up their captives as they would have seen it was for judgment. And now this section falls into a rhetoric of revealing. Like I said, apocalypse or apocalypse is the revealing. It allows you to see. And so what John the Revelator says is, now look. He said, then I saw. Then I saw one sitting on the throne, and things were about to happen. Death, every realm of death had to let go of humanity. He said, then I saw a bride coming down, which is beautiful, the new Jerusalem, the place where God and humanity could be together. And so in 2011, earth and heaven fled. In 2014, like I said, death and Hades, they themselves, those realms, that system of power, that which destroyed and corrupted life, says experiences a second death. So that which could corrupt actually disappears. And then 21.1 said, because there's a new heaven and a new earth. And this is one that could be just weird for us since we don't often think of this is in 21.1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth ceased to exist, and the sea also ceased to exist. Like for us, we might not think of saying, in the redemption of all things, you know what's going to happen? There's no deserts. We probably wouldn't name, and heaven and earth passed, and you know what the new heaven and earth doesn't have? A cactus, because that could feel weird. But for them, the sea was a realm of uncreation. It was a realm of chaos. Everything that could destroy what we hoped for resided within the sea. That was the chaos monsters. That was death. That was the abyss that no one could swim to the bottom of. There was a latent fear within the people when they spoke about the ocean that the absence of the sea, the absence of the chaos, meant that only life order could exist now. So the new heaven and new earth symbolize in a place without ocean, without sea, now means that that which you're living into, it's not a matter of taking it literally, not saying that this physical reality disappears. It's saying the potential of this reality becomes one which has to lead towards death, to one which cultivates new life in such a way that the agents of chaos, the agents of disorder, the agents which would cripple you in the pursuit of life, fade. And the life has won, chaos is passing, because it anticipates that love has come, which is what today is about. We anticipate the love coming. So the end of all things turns out to be the birth of the Prince of Peace. The end of all things turns out to be that time in chapter 21, verse 4, which says, they will wipe away every tear. Death will not exist, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, because these are aspects of the former things. And the former things, the former ways have ceased. Now, when we hear the former things, if we took it just literally, we might think like f physical order. The, the former things are actually matter. And so sometimes we can get trapped into a notion of 
the, the new things are going to be spirit and not matter. The new things are not going to be this earth place. But what it's talking about when it says the former things are the former methods, the former ways, the, further, the former systems that kept people in place. If we think about who's writing this, this is in the time of Nero. And Nero was a capricious ruler. He was one who slaughtered people for the sake of trying just to keep power. So the former ways was the tools of Nero, the power of Rome, the systems which do not see the people before them, rather sees needed sacrifices so that the system can keep running. In our own way, when we say the former things, we'd actually have to speak about what systems within our economy, within our judicial system, within our lives, need someone's sacrifice to keep running. Yes, it harms them, but that's okay because we have a general system that is good enough. It says, no, these former things will pass. So when love comes, the people will be judged according to their actions rather than by their stereotype or reputation. Because these were people that had been crucified. Um, one of Nero's things that he became famous for, he's, he would dip Christians and also Jews and people that were considered non-Romans. So we didn't have exclusive rights to these kind of pains. But we did get the ultimate right because Christians in the earlier times in this time period thought martyrdom was the ultimate testament to your faith in Christ. He would dip them in wax and use them as candles at his garden parties. So they were killed for their reputation, for the stereotype of being a strange people. They were killed not for their loving acts of going into the areas with the Black Plague. They were killed because they were an oddity. And so for these people in apocalyptic literature, it says, do you know what they hope for? They hope that they can be seen when love comes, when we can light the candle. You're seen for your actions, not just the reputation. You're seen for what you do to show up not just for what other people say about you. And in that, you get to experience new life because that's what their hope. They knew when God showed up, when love showed up, when there was a new earth, the former systems that could demand their death didn't exist because now God could see them and say, you are beautiful for your steps. You're not just beautiful, but you'll be worthy of being honored for what you've done because I see what you do. And that is the hope of Revelation because sometimes in this chapter, we can get lost in the notion of saying, well, who gets thrown into the second death, the lake of fire? And we spend a lot of ink on pages. We have a lot of books written to try and define perfectly what is the second death and lake of fire, but we're missing the hope of the book, the story they tell. The hope of the story they tell is that you will be seen for your virtue, for your beauty, and for the steps you take forward. And I say, I've seen this in my own life because at times um, I've had to witness what it could be to transcend reputation to see actions. See, my mother was an addict since I was a child. I attended my first AA meeting when I think I was 16 or 17 because my mother had just gotten out of rehab. And I saw one of the most beautiful things because at the time people were unsure what to do with AA because they said they weren't outspoken enough about God. You're allowed to say that I have a power which is higher than myself that I acknowledge. But they did something beautiful there because my mother, who'd been an addict for decades, unstable, unable to step into life, had to get put into rehab and she went into rehab because the judge said you have two choices and I'm gonna give you a weekend in prison to think about it. 
you can go to rehab or you can do two years. But she said, the judge said, just in case you think you're very hard, that you have street credit because you're running with some dangerous people, it's like, I want to give you a, the three-day weekend. You'll sit in there and say, is this the next couple years I want? Or you can go to a full exclusion rehab that demanded your phone, your time, you quit your job, and you were locked from any contact for eight months, and it was a 16-month program. Going there, and you can see my mom sitting there, by no means did she become perfect overnight, by no means did her reputation disappear, but she did something I've never seen with people that I think is the most beautiful act of what it is to experience God with each other. She got to celebrate her one-day chip. Because in this area, it was not your reputation that defined you. If you stepped forward to your first day, they would celebrate you. Because they knew the story does not end with rehab. That is the new beginning. The story does not end with you recognizing a new system. You stand up and you name, I have a weakness. I cannot go forward, save for the fact that I'll stand with you if you'll stand with me. And they could celebrate that moment of the one chip. And that is what I'd say Advent is about, being able to see each other's humanity in such a way that we can celebrate each other's one-day chip. When love comes, the old stories get new life as God dwells with humanity, because in NIV it says man. That is a terrible translation. Um, it is humanity. And so the beauty, the hope, the, what's going to happen when things come is that we are anticipating in the darkest night of the year, in the middle of winter, when we only, especially in Canada, have three and a half hours of day, this time when you have no night. And God will be with us, which looks like New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem was a place where heaven and earth intersected. And so that's going to be the place we all exist now. In 21.3, it says, For behold, the dwelling of God is with humanity. And what you might not know is that dwelling is skenao. If you never did Greek, you probably didn't get to read about how this is the verb used for the tense in the story of Exodus. Because old stories don't always produce life now. So for John the Revelator, who's raised within the stories of Israel, the old Exodus was about the rise of one tribe to one nation. It was about the right of a single group to have a land. That story no longer gave life under the threat and violence of Rome. He repurposed the story. He retold the stories because the stories didn't have one meaning. He said that story was not giving life before, but now the story we can step into when the old stories no longer give new life is a story of a God that exists with all humanity. But he still uses the terms of Exodus. He still uses the terms of the stories he was raised in, which is what I would encourage us, that we don't get trapped in a once-for-all telling of things, but that we would recognize sometimes the stories we were raised with, sometimes the way we've come to understand God, each other, reputation, and personhood, have to be measured against is it producing life. If it's not producing life, sometimes the old stories, just like the story of Exodus for John, have to be retold in such a way that you can reimagine faith to see the hope, beauty, and purpose in the people around you. That you can reimagine an Exodus story that no longer includes one tribe, but the entire world. 
that is divorced from the powers of Rome where sword and violence can bring it about to say that we can exist with each other to celebrate that one beautiful moment that you stepped forward because you will be seen for the acts that you have. And that is a promise of celebrating your virtue, not a threat at impending doom. Yet when love comes, our efforts to add our voice to the next chapter of God's dwelling with us will be seen and celebrated. You will be seen and celebrated. And like the one-day chip, your beautiful actions will take the place of honor as we sit with God in the Advent, expecting love to come to us. And as we've been doing lately, in this telling of Revelation to where I'd say, it gives us a view of how do we step into a, a new story? How do we anticipate the next writing? I'd ask a question that we've been doing. We've been having some question and answer time that we could try to um, reflect together. What old stories are you holding on to that may need a new telling to produce life? Just because this can be a vulnerable thing, um, I actually wrote for myself. For myself, the story that old story I hold on to that I'm trying to learn how to retell is the impotence of the church, the lack of ability for it to produce life or to have any other merit than the fact it takes up a few nights of my life. I'm trying to live into a new story by reimagining what the faith community can be, but I'm learning to tell it as I try to walk with it. It's an old story, but I'm hoping I can find a way to have voice to say that there's new life in it. So if anyone would like to say, what old stories are you still holding on to that could use a new telling for life? Oh, it's beautiful, and that's always, at least for myself, difficult, because if you have so many years practicing one way of being, and you get a fresh perspective, like with the art pieces, it probably took Kathy at least two tries before the new perspectives started to work for her. I'm going with two, it makes me feel better. <laughs> exactly, there are boxes of not mistakes, boxes of edification, boxes of growth, boxes of discipline, boxes of changing perspectives because the way she saw for these paintings is not the way she sees now. And it shows in the liveliness of what she does. Um, just for time, I'll ask the other question. If we allow ourselves to anticipate love coming to us by celebrating the acts of the people we see before the reputations, can you see any conflict that will come? And if so, where would the conflict be? We'll get to experience some discomfort because the people that will show up will not be the ones that we anticipate. And the ones not being the ones we anticipate, it may be the difference of sexuality, gender, or political affiliations. It may be the difference of religion, traditions. But we get to celebrate the person showing up because we anticipate the beautiful new bride, which is the new Jerusalem where all people gather around God.